This media has been presented to you by the Maryland Men of Faith, where men are challenged and encouraged to form the character of Christ. For more information, please visit mmof.org. God, thank you for this chance to reflect upon an important topic uh, and one that's either under-addressed or addressed in ways that have statistically proven to be not that helpful. So I pray that you would bless us, that you give us wisdom and insight from heaven. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. Uh, I fully believe that God is in the business of bringing healing and freedom to all struggles. Do you believe that? Um, But sometimes it's hard to believe that when there's something that just keeps plaguing us day after day and year after year. But I hope and pray that this uh, seminar can actually give us hope. Um, We're going to cover some pretty raw stuff. Are you okay with that? This is a men's conference. We're here with the boys. So... um, But we're going to deal with some pretty heavy stuff. Some of it may even be potentially triggering. It's not going to be appropriate for children. I'm not going to get graphic, but we are going to deal with a pretty pretty heavy topic. Um, But I'm going to do my best to be tactful. So statistically, 77% of Christian men from ages 18 to 30 report using porn monthly. This is Christian men, 77%. 36% of those men are using it daily. Uh, The age of 11 is the average age of first exposure. For me, it was six, five or six. Um, So it could vary. 55% of married men and 25% of married women say that they view porn once a month. And by the way, I'll give these slides to Maryland Men of Faith. You can have all of them. Okay? I'll make sure you guys can have those. 87% of Christian women say that they have watched porn. 87% of them. That they've seen it. 56% of divorces cite porn use as a causative factor. And this is all from the Conqueror series. I've I've never seen, I've heard of it. I've not used it. Um, It's just a place where I got some statistics. So the main thing is, the main point I want to make is, what we've been doing is not working. Can we just agree to that? Uh, There are resources that exist, but the statistics aren't changing much as it stands right now. I think a disruption to our way of thinking regarding what we do and how we've addressed this is needed. A disruption is required, and it's okay to be a disruptor. Jesus was a disruptor, right? Dude rolls in and says, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you, right? He had to go through this process of saying, you've been hearing that this is the way to address and think, but I'm letting you know God's perspective is different than what you've been told. Jesus had to do that, right? And I think that within Christianity and Adventism, this is going to be another one of those situations for us. I think avoiding mental health and family of origin dynamics is continuing to keep the church from being an effective and relevant resource in addressing this specific struggle. If you ignore the topic of mental health and family of origin issues, you will not get to the root. You may, by God's grace, cease acting out and looking at porn, but the brokenness that led you to porn usage remains unministered to and unaddressed. Does that make sense? And the porn industry actually understands us better than the church does, unfortunately. This is actually one of the reasons why many of the themes within pornography have family dynamics. The titles, the themes, and so forth have family dynamics within them. Why? Because they understand the psychology behind porn usage that the church doesn't. So we don't address those things, and the people who are creating this predatory content, they know how you work. They know how you think, they know what homes you're coming from, they know what your struggles are, and they're creating content to speak into those spaces, and the church is largely ignoring that topic altogether on this struggle, right? It doesn't mean that we don't have, you know, family of origin, you know, mental health things here and there to some degree, but when we tie that to sexual brokenness and addiction, it's largely not part of the conversation. 
Um, but two disruptive resources have been produced in the last four years that I think are absolute game changers um, that can address how we as a faith community can talk about this context of sex and sex addiction. But I am, yes, uh-huh. Doubly so, actually. Uh, but before I go to those, I want to establish something that I think we haven't fully understood as a movement. In Isaiah 61, this is something that Jesus quotes. So in Luke chapter 4, I believe, he goes into the synagogue, they hand him the scroll of Isaiah, and he goes to this, and this is Jesus' introduction to his ministry. Here's what I'm about, here's what I came here for, and this is what he quotes in Luke 4, I believe. It's Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Now, does that sound relevant to people who are struggling and in the throes of sexual addiction? Yes or no? A hundred percent. Jesus came here for this, to heal the brokenhearted, to set the captives free. And so if that's Jesus' call, and as Christians, we're called to be Christ's followers, to be Christ-like, then this should be our call as the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Not just to prove that our doctrine is better than the other guys, which is what most of our evangelistic series sound like, by the way, unfortunately. It's a long discourse about we're arguing with an evangelical minister who isn't even in the room when we're speaking to visitors, right? So we need to make sure that the evangelism we're doing doesn't ignore the Adventist message. It's gorgeous. But the Adventist message should be teaching us something about Jesus, not these detached items where Jesus is seemingly and conspicuously absent. So this is something that he came to do, to heal the brokenhearted. So our evangelism should be healing the brokenhearted. Our public meetings, our Bible studies should be ministering to the whole person. Jesus continues, well, the prophecy about Jesus continues, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. you know how many people are wrestling with believing that God could accept them because they're in the throes of sexual addiction? Many. And the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. You ever felt that spirit of heaviness? You're trapped and can't get out? that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. I believe our approach to sexual brokenness should lead to this result, healing the brokenhearted, setting the captives free, to comfort those who mourn, to give the oil of joy for mourning, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Did you know that 3ABN's pastoral department is getting an alarming amount of phone calls from Seventh-day Adventist adults and pastors who have zero assurance of salvation? It's a true story. So this idea of proclaiming the acceptable year of the Lord is also important because there are many people who believe that God can't accept them because they're too messed up, they're too broken, they're too dirty, and so forth. So Jesus came to address the root issues to reverse the fall of man. Okay? He didn't come to shame us or to merely modify our behavior. That's not what he came here for. He came to heal us of our broken hearts. Okay? John 3.17 says that God did not send Jesus into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And the word for saved there is the word sozo, and we'll come back to that in a second. We see that word again in Romans 5 and verse 10, that for if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved sozo by his life. Now that word sozo means to save, to heal, to preserve, and to rescue. Fascinating, huh? It isn't just this soteriology term of the plan of salvation, right? It's meant it's to deliver out of danger into safety, right? God rescuing believers from the penalty and power of sin and into his provisions, okay? 
to be rescued from destruction and brought into divine safety. Okay? So God never intended for there to be a difference between healing and salvation. They were never meant to be separated. We call the health message the right hand of the gospel, and that's right, or the right arm of the gospel. But health, healing, and salvation were always meant to be synonymous. They were both supposed to go hand in hand. Some of us really wrestle with this. We're forgiven for a sin, but we won't let God heal us from the wounds that that sin caused. Right? So we find temporary forgiveness, but we don't find healing from the wounds that our sins have caused. So the self-hatred, the self-sabotage, the addictive tendencies, and the shame that comes, and all the results of it, we don't. God wants to give you complete and total healing. He doesn't just say that it didn't happen, and that it's covered by the blood of Jesus. He wants you to be able to live your life as if it doesn't happen, and didn't happen. Does that make sense? He wants complete and total healing. Many of us are in bondage, and God doesn't want that for us. Right? The word sozo is used interchangeably to address healing and salvation. He doesn't just want to save you. He wants to heal you completely and to set you free from all these wounds that are hindering your current experience. He wants that for you. Right? That's kind of the, the theological component of this presentation. Now, we need to flip some tables. The resources that are largely being pushed within Christianity today with the best of intentions written by men and women who have the best of intentions are actually causing more harm than help. Statistics are starting to show, people are starting to do studies on why people are struggling in their marriages, uh, whether women are not having a fulfilling sexual experience, the orgasm gap between male and female, all those circumstances are going on. And they're coming to find that teachings in these resources are a causative factor in the struggles in our sexual union with the husband and the wife. And it's also causing struggles with the men and women who struggle with lust. So I want to address both of these resources and quote from them pretty extensively in the seminar. Uh, and then uh, also give you some resources at the end. So these are some of those troubling narratives that we see uh, in the Christian resources on marriage. That men need sex more than women, right? That men, that they have to have this. It's a desperate need and they need that more than women. That if the wife gives her husband sex, he won't run to porn or other women. Right? So she feels pressured now to give her husband whatever he wants so that at least he won't run to porn or to other women. But is that going to be an enjoyable experience for the woman if she's doing it begrudgingly? And it's basically she's being threatened. If you don't sleep with your husband and give him whatever he wants, he's going to do that same stuff with somebody else or fantasize about somebody else doing it. Is that a healthy mindset? Absolutely not. Yet many Christian resources, well-respected ones, are saying that and implying that. That all men are wired this way. We're basically sex-crazed zombies with no self-control. Now you laugh. I'm deeply offended by this. And this is the theme of most Christian books. Books that you're told about at conferences that you should read to help you deal with your manly issues and so forth. You are a dumb, raging animal with hormones that cannot be controlled. That's what most of these resources are saying. And so you need to sleep with your wife so you won't act out other places. It's the only way to really domesticate a wild animal is to just get married. This is part of what's implied. That men will look at women and lust after them if they don't dress properly. Okay, that that's a guarantee that's going to happen. And that a woman's body is a threat to a man's ability to maintain pure thoughts. Right? Bounce the eyes because you know, the woman's going to cause you problems. And a woman shouldn't withhold sex because the Bible says not to deprive one another. Now the irony is that's used against women, but one another includes women. You know that, right? So that means you shouldn't be depriving the woman of what she needs. But most of the resources don't address the women's needs. This is the other problem. 
The women's needs are largely unaddressed. It's about the fact that a man has a need. In fact, women don't really have that need as much as men do. So the way that a woman makes a man feel important and respected is by giving him what he needs. Because what women really need is love, but a man needs respect, right? The unfortunate thing is it's giving a mixed-up narrative. So, um, as someone who's called to protect your wife and your daughters, this isn't something that's going to do that. Right? These types of teachings, you're called to protect them and look out for them. That also means to protect them from dangerous forms of thinking, right? Not just from predatory men and so forth. Um, so we give very little conversation of what makes this experience more enjoyable for women. Uh, and this can be one of the reasons, by the way, why their desire for sex may not be as strong. Because their sexual experience is not meeting their needs or tailored to doing so. Does that make sense? Right? If you go somewhere and the place that you go isn't meeting your needs, are you inclined to want to keep going there? No. How many resources are there in Christendom that are talking about the importance of a woman's needs being met? It's mainly that a man has this need. Right? And so uh, they largely feel like this is a place where men's needs are met and that they get their release, but their desires are left unmet. And statistics are showing there is a dramatic difference in orgasms between men and women. Like nearly 40-something percent difference on nearly always or always a woman reaching orgasm in sexual intercourse. Why? Because we aren't talking about how they're wired and what they need. It's about the fact that the men need something. Right? But there's a whole mental component to the woman's experience that leads to that that's largely unaddressed. Some of these teachings actually lead to the opposite results than what we would want. Does that make sense? And that's addressed in some of these resources that I'll refer you to. Some of the troubling narratives on lust... Um, that basically the idea is down boy, down boy, right? Avoid all sexual desire. It's terrible. It's bad. Don't think about it. Okay. Uh, sex education is largely flamed, framed on what not to do with little healthy education on what to do and what a gift and beautiful thing sexuality is, not just sex, right? We'll say from the pulpit, sex is a beautiful thing, but we don't really talk about the fact that you having sexual desires is not something shameful or bad. Some of you may be cringing right now just because we keep using sex-related words because you can't say this is a Sabbath. And there's a <laughs> right? We don't have conversations about this, and it makes us really uncomfortable, and we feel a lot of shame and fear. But this is supposed to be a place where you're free to express, right? And to communicate and share, and yet that isn't really allowed for the way that we frame the conversations, especially some of the resources we use. So our young people are filled with a lot of fear and shame going into it, and women will even feel dirty after having sex with their wife on their marriage. Why? Because it's something you can't do, can't do, can't do, can't do, and then all of a sudden it's okay? To be told no for 20 years of your life, and that it's seemingly bad and shameful and whatever, and not really be given any resources to appreciate or enjoy it, now when you do it, that messaging doesn't go away when you say, I do. Are you understanding? This is some of the problematic approach that we've had. A behavior modification approach or shame-based programming approaches, and a large focus on outward accountability, but little on root issues, and very little content addressing family of origins and trauma, which are big fuels to uh, unwanted sexual behavior. So, I'm going to read some segments from this book, uh, and some quotes that have been really helpful for me to kind of open up my eyes. There's a whole other landscape to recovery, and... There's a whole lot more information now available to us based upon data. So both of these books, Unwanted and The Great Sex Rescue, are built upon three components. Mental health, biblical theology, and statistics. 
They've done a significant amount in the thousands of research and surveys of people to find out what the common threads are on people who are struggling in Jay's book with unwanted sexual behavior and marital and intimacy issues and sex issues within marriage with Sheila. Um, and so he did surveys over thousands of men to find out and women what the, what the reasons are and why people are struggling with their sexual addiction. And it's a bunch of stuff that we don't talk about. So our solutions are largely un, our solutions are largely not speaking into the space of what actually fuels sexual addiction. Does that make sense? So we're providing the wrong solution many times to a problem that isn't fully understood. So I want to kind of give you kind of a, a framework here and kind of start the context. So he talks about this idea of abandonment in his book and family issues. He says, children who grow up in rigid and disengaged homes often grow up feeling abandoned. They realize that the delight and respect they desire isn't going to come to pass. And to survive, so to survive, they must develop resiliency and find surrogate sources of comfort or they'll die. So we grew up in homes where mom isn't available or dad isn't available. You have been trained from a very early age to act, to go somewhere outside of the home to fill and comfort yourself. Does sexual addiction meet that need? Yes or no? Yes. Not in a healthy way, but the answer is yes, right? Abandonment can be experienced in overt ways, such as when a parent leaves the family in the midst of immense marital conflict. But it can also occur in subtle ways, such as when you recognize that one of your siblings has more of the affection and delight of your parents than you will ever receive. He says his research found that 47% of men and women did not have someone they could talk to when something difficult happened in their childhood. It's not that these children do not have parents, it's that the children did not discern whether they could feel safe in bringing their difficulties of life to their parents. So are you starting to see, we need to take further steps back from just, oh, you're struggling with sexual addiction, we'll bounce your eyes, get accountability software, and do all this other stuff, right? The problem is, no, 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 their longing, their, their pull for this started at childhood, not 10 minutes ago. Does that make sense? There are many of these circumstances that go unaddressed. So when you find yourself curious about sex, how much of a fool would you need to be to bring these questions to your parents when you intuitively know that you'll be silenced or make your parents feel incredibly uncomfortable? So where are children running to get sexual education? From their friends who are looking at pornography, from pornography, and from Hollywood, and from media. Does that make sense? Because they don't feel safe talking with their parents about the thoughts and feelings they're having inside, right? Um, so the abdication of power does more damage in an organization than coercive leadership. Leaders certainly wreck, uh, wreck organizations when they are forceful, but they are most destructive when they fail to fully own the power of their positions. He says the same is true for parents who abdicate their power in the lives of their children. Respondents to my research reported considerable disengagement from their parents. One of the most glaring areas in which parents were remiss was in talking to their children about sex. Here's one of those foundational issues that is largely unaddressed. So a child needs to hear sex talked about in a way that honors the natural God-given changes and desires that will accompany them from childhood to adulthood. An overemphasis on negative instruction about sex has the capacity to lead a child to associate sex with silence and shame. Right? So don't, 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 don't. Stay away, stay away, stay away. Right? This is the messaging they hear. So now when they go into marriage again, that messaging is still there. It's deeply ingrained within them. Does that make sense? So by the time the child reaches adulthood, this association becomes ingrained and continues to operate. And 
Parents who did not engage their children in conversation about sex may not have done so for a variety of reasons. Sadly, they allowed the most vulnerable and beautiful dimension of their children's lives to be shaped by the media, the porn industry, or porn-saturated peers. And when the parents abdicated their own power to frame healthy and normative sex education for you, they were intentionally or not creating a world of silence and intrigue. Because it's a mystery, right? And that intrigue is part of that pull and that desire. So where parents and faith communities will not educate, pornography will. The problem is the message that pornography gives you and that Hollywood gives you does not actually speak into the space where women's needs are and what intimacy is supposed to look like and what sets them up for success. Neither one of these industries are communicating what that roadmap looks like to lead to more successful orgasm for a woman, for her to have a more satisfying, satisfying experience sexually. So their education is programming women for heartbreak and hurt, let alone the fact that most pornography depicts violence against women and degrading women, right? They're just objects to be used and abused and hurt and so forth. Does that make sense? So the education our young men are getting is this because we haven't taught them to appreciate and respect women as humans, not just receptacles, right? This is part of our messaging that we really struggled with. Um, so he tells the story of this girl, Madison, who uh, her sister was really gifted in the sports, but she wasn't. And her dad took her out to kick a soccer ball. She wasn't good at it. And she starts staring at this hawk, and he gets so mad, he drop kicks the soccer ball, trying to hit the hawk, and says, enjoy your stupid bird, and walks off. And this type of messaging really hurt her way later into life, because she went into studying biology. And she gets her PhD. None of her family goes to her graduation, because her sister has an NCAA volleyball game somewhere else. No one shows up. And so he says this. She, so she started doing hookup apps and looking at porn to find some way to fill the vacancies because she was completely unloved by dad at home. Does that make sense? By the way, one of the biggest reasons why women jump around from man to man to man to man is absentee workaholic fathers. Dad's nowhere to be around. And so I'm learning to get love and acceptance from men because dad's too busy to be that loving influence in my life. Right? There are causative factors that lead to this. So just telling people stop the bad behavior, and what's the science of stopping the behavior, misses the entire point. Are you understanding? We bag on the medical community in Adventism for just giving people drugs and not dealing with root issues. But we're just as guilty as all, as, as all of evangelicalism on sexual ethics and issues. We don't deal with root issues. We just tell them stop the bad behavior, it's shameful, it's bad. Does that make sense? We're actually doing the very thing that we speak against. He says, Madison was not a worthless woman because she viewed pornography or used hookup apps. Rather, she felt worthless and therefore, listen to this and follow his line of reasoning. She felt worthless and therefore was drawn to pornography, a behavior that for her would confirm this belief. There's a whole element of self-sabotage that's also part of our sexual addiction. We run to it to confirm the negative messaging that we feel about ourselves. We're actually more addicted to the negative messaging than the lust itself. Are you understanding the logic of this and what's being said here? So you're actually addicted to those feelings you get negatively, right? There's a whole other element to pornography usage that's called reenactment. We'll get to that here in just a second, where you're actually reliving traumatic experiences and family dynamics from your childhood, which is, again, why you see so many titles about my stepsister or my mom or all this stuff within the pornography realm. There's a reason they do that, right? It sounds crazy from the outside. They understand the family dynamics that are leading you to their websites to begin with, and they're feeding that. Does that make sense? The sons of the world are more true than the sons of the kingdom, Jesus said. And that's true in this area, too. 
more shrewd, right? More wise than the people of the kingdom. So he says, she knew that her inferior athleticism will lead to an ongoing distance from her dad because she could not reflect the image her father wanted in a daughter. So her natural, beautiful curiosity for discovery was seen as something second class. Madison's life shows us something profound. When we condemn our God-given desire to be loved and accepted, we should be on high alert for the ways that will trash this longing with shameful behavior. You'll give yourself what you've been told that you deserve. Rejection, isolation, loneliness, and so forth, right? Um, He talks about Tom, who's looking at porn. He came from a very conservative and emotionally distant evangelical home. His pornography of choice was women uh, who had engaged in oral sex in a subservient position. He imagined himself standing there as the male actor in the film. And in his fantasy, he was a desirable, powerful man, able to influence a woman to acquiesce before him. He worked with a therapist for pornography addiction, but all she basically told him was to get software to block porn, and that his porn was likely a lustful attempt to look for love in the wrong place. None of the particulars associated with the pornography searches were explored. Far too many like Tom, uh, for far too many like Tom, this is the extent to which their struggles are engaged. And it's a tragedy. Because when pornography is addressed only through the lens of lust, when the stories that set up pornography use are evaded, an enemic treatment plan always follows. Sexual cessation will be prescribed, encouragement to tell his or her spouse will be given, and the client will be asked to join an accountability group. But listen to this. Pornography searches expose lust, but far more, they reveal the dimensions of our lives that await love. He goes so far as to say that the very things that you're searching for in the search columns on porn websites is actually telling you something about your own story that's unresolved. And you're running to those themes. So if you had a hard domineering mom, you're going to be more drawn maybe to subservient cultures or subservient frames, right? A woman who looks weaker or or smaller build, or you're running to things where the woman serves the man, right? Because you've been in a power over dynamic. You're now looking for a power over theme in pornography. Does this make sense? So this is what this guy ran to because he was in a work setting where he's unappreciated. He's giving, 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 giving. Everybody's asking from him. So the things and the themes he ran to in pornography were themes that finally put him in charge where he was being served. Does that make sense? What you're searching for and lust for and what you're longing for, it's not random, guys. And so the point that Jay's making in his book is that running from your lust and quieting your lust isn't going to solve the problem. He said, what you actually need to do is stop and listen to your lust because it's telling you something about your own story that's unresolved and that's still plaguing you today. Does that make sense? This isn't the way we talk about this, right? Just run from it like the plague, get away from it, ignore your family dynamics. It's painful. Don't dwell on your past. Don't beat up your parents. That's all therapists do. Tell you what bad things your parents did and move on with your life. This is what most people believe, especially men, right? Especially men that are of an older demographic. But it doesn't work, okay? And so this is what ends up happening with most people when they're struggling. Um, Abandonment, such as what Madison and Tom suffered, leads to a tendency to develop a calloused outlook on life. You may act out sexually, but you think it doesn't really matter to anyone. You may be in a difficult marriage, but you know you chose a partner you didn't have high hopes for to begin with. Abandonment is dangerous because it tempts us to lose faith or never find it. In the most foundational levels of what it means to be human, individual maturity, and a loving bond with others. The types of sexual behavior we pursue is a direct reflection. I don't know why that happened. Um, the type of sexual behavior we pursue. Per, uh, sorry, I was trying to do two things at once. 
that we pursue is a direct reflection of how highly or poorly we think of ourselves. When abandoned, we're convinced that we are left because of the deep flaws that exist within us. This shame-based identity is, when, is, wove, is then woven into all our choices and eventually becomes the lens through which we see our lives. Our careers, our spouses, or lack thereof, and sexual behavior all become additional data that reinforces how troubled we are. We run to behavior to reestablish and reaffirm and deepen the messaging we're already believing about ourselves. I've come to understand that people make bad decisions not because of the potential for pleasure, but to add additional evidence to their self-judgment. Healing involves making conscious decisions about the data of sexual brokenness in one's life. Your behavior can be an invitation to become an adult and heal the pain driving your decisions, or it will inevitably be irrefutable evidence that proves how pathetic you've become. To write a new sexual story for yourself, something must shift in your commitment to hiding the anxiety, shame, and anger in your life. You starting to kind of understand where he's going with this? He says, naming the places where our families and communities left us vulnerable to abuse is not an act of betrayal, it's an act of wisdom. He says, we have to make a choice to face our story with honesty and honor. Usually we choose one or the other. I have to honor my parents, so I won't admit the fact that they messed things up for me in certain aspects, mom or dad, with the best of intentions. So we don't engage our story with honesty so we can't find true healing. Or we address it with honesty, but we don't honor our parents. All we do is rail on them and blame them. Does that make sense? We kind of need to find that proper balance. He says, you must choose whether to see the context of your abuse with honesty or naivete. Honesty will lead you to grieve for a child who lacked the foundation of safety and delight. But naivete will sur- uh, surrounding the context of your abuse leads you to blame yourself as a child for not knowing better. You must assess the cost of each. I should have known better. I should have known better. Many times that's messaging that we think and feel after these things happen to us. He says, abuse is so tragic because it takes our God-given longing to be pursued, pleasured, and known, and it transforms it into something that brings us shame, right? Because this is what people who've been raped really struggle with, right? The fact that I felt some form of pleasure while being violated brings a lot of guilt after the fact, right? Because of this, or if you're abused, someone touched me the wrong way and I was aroused by it, right? Even though it wasn't okay, it wasn't good, we feel shame, right? We feel like we did something in those scenarios. He says, it should not be lost on you that much of your attraction to unwanted sexual behavior may be inviting you to a very similar drama with very similar outcomes to what set you up for this in the very beginning. A sexual reenactment is when we return to the sexual blueprint of our abuse in adulthood. Right? And this happens a lot with people. They're abused at a young age. They run to a life of promiscuity and exploration right? because of how these things started and so forth. Reenactments occur in our pursuit of pornography, a secretive affair, sexual fantasies, and buying sex. We think we have some control of our sexual desire, but our behavior and fantasies ensure that we return to our original sexual shame. This is why running from your lust won't solve the underlying issues of just stop going to prostitutes and stop looking at porn or whatever. Though that draw is still going to be there for you until you address the root. Does that make sense? Okay, the underlying issue. Um, so the porn industry, again, knows far more about how we're wired and what draws us than the church does, unfortunately. So the resources we've been creating have largely been weak. Um, he's got a whole section here, a chapter called Trauma as a Soul Loss. Um,
He says, The perilous nature of emotional trauma in our lives is how it evades detection. We become so fixated on stopping our unwanted behavior that we forget to look around for other explanations for its arrival. And so he says, The presence of sexual brokenness reveals portions of your life that have yet to heal. Whereas scars reveal external wounds, unwanted sexual behavior often reveals internal ones. Trauma is like a master magician magician when you're struggling with sexual brokenness. You may have thought that your unwanted sexual behavior magically appears like a rabbit out of thin air. In reality, the magician had to put the rabbit behind his table before you arrived. The magician draws your attention to the hat on the table, and this is all that's needed to distract you from the presence of the rabbit. Okay? And Bezel Vanderkook, a, a specialist on the topic of shame, he says this, We have learned that trauma is not just an event that took place sometime in the past, it is also the imprint left by the experience on the mind, brain, and body. For example, if you were called stupid as a child, the imprint of the wound may be revealed in your relentless attempts to be uh, competent or the toxic shame you feel when someone realizes that you don't know how to do something. Right? The reason why that cripples you so much and is so painful is because that messaging was given you much, much earlier in life. Um, he talks about emotional abuse and so forth. But he says, pornography streams through our eyes and into the crevices of our trauma. James became hooked on porn in college. The videos that appealed to him the most essentially had to do with young women being humiliated. The actresses would be called dirty names while pretending as if this degradation were a huge turn-on for them. So this was a tremendous source of shame for him until he began to recognize the significant association between his earliest traumas and his present-day arousal. As therapy progressed, James connected how the trauma he suffered, ongoing humiliation, physical abuse, and loss of soul, directly related to the nature of the pornography he sought out. As you can see, James used pornography to attempt to overturn the bullying and abuse through becoming the powerful one in his fantasy. When his sexual behavior was discovered, he tragically experienced yet another round of painful humiliation. Porn often involves themes of humiliation, violence, and emotional enmeshment because the sex industry knows that porn users uh, who have endured these traumas will be aroused by the eroticizing of these traumas later in life. So the very traumatic experiences you have as a kid, they eroticize those in porn and it triggers something for you. You can imagine the futility of James's attempting to stop lusting for humiliating pornography without first recognizing his personal experiences of humiliation. The specifics of our sexual brokenness reveal the very stories of trauma we need to heal from. Healing requires you to pivot from condemning your lack of willpower to addressing the role trauma may have played in your unwanted sexual behavior. A heart with an ounce of kindness for your life story will accomplish so much more for you than a mind filled to the brim with strategies to combat lust. Vandercook continues, Very few psychological problems uh, are the result of defects in understanding. We tend to focus on the apparent defects because it gives us something to blame, something to control. But what happens when we have nothing left to blame and no silver bullet to pursue? We're left with our pain, he says. Collectively, we prefer to blame our defects in understanding or a lack of willpower for unwanted sexual behavior. The solution is to find the latest and greatest strategy to combat lust. You can spend all your time and money trying to develop strategies to treat bad behavior and forget that the solution to your problem may be evident in the sexual brokenness itself. The more you look for strategies to combat lust or fortify your willpower against unwanted sexual behavior, the further you are from the traumas of your story. Right? 
So he says, some of my clients lust not only for sexual behavior, but also for the right therapist, the right book, and the right software. They'll do almost anything except to slow down and study how the debris of their sexual behavior is telling a story about the unresolved trauma of their lives. Oh, if I can just get this book or go to this seminar or read that resource or go to this class, then it'll be over. We're lusting for that in the same way we've been lusting for porn or or something else. If you see striving for a lust-free life, what would you be left with, he says. We can be so preoccupied with filling our lives with something to do, rather than trusting that God wants to do something within us. Jesus' invitation to go to him when we are weary and heavy laden is for our sexual failures, but even more so for the trauma beneath those failures. God looks beyond the outward appearance of unwanted sexual behavior and into the heart of what is driving men and women into captivities. Okay? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll skip this for, for time's sake, but he has, addresses a lot more of these issues here. He says, The introduction of pornography is the left jab that sets up the right hook of a lifetime of unwanted sexual behavior. By the way, exposing someone to pornography is sexual abuse. That's sexual abuse. When you expose somebody to this, that is sexual abuse. So if someone exposed you to pornography at a young age, you were sexually abused. This set you up for hardship and trauma sexually. The totality of your childhood experiences served as your functional map of the world. To your detriment, the stories you sought to bury or avoid became the foundations of your unwanted sexual behavior, whether you like it or not. Knowing the origins of your behavior is central to the recovery process, but it does not cure you. You will also need to address why unwanted sexual behavior is an essential component in your present life. Your unwanted sexual behavior reveals the wounds of your past, but it also highlights the specific day-to-day experiences you will need to transform in order to find freedom. So we've dealt with kind of the past component. We're going to have to better understand our story and how that's playing a role. But there are also current day triggers that confirm that messaging or cause us issues right now. He says the six key or six core experiences of unwanted sexual behavior currently are deprivation, dissociation, unconscious sexual arousal, futility, lust, and anger. Okay? So when he talks about deprivation, this is where you do not do things to take care of yourself. Someone invites you to hang out and say, nah, I, I, don't, I don't want to. The problem is whenever you ignore opportunities to be blessed and filled, you then feel resentful that no one blesses or fills you. And that anger will then, once you get two or three of these things together, there's a wildfire of unwanted sexual behavior in your life. Right? These are things that connected together will fuel that. So you start to feel that no one cares about me, even though you're the one that isolated yourself from people. You deprive yourself of good friendships, of good community, of proper exercise or of um, vacation. Right? Sometimes you just work too long or... Uh, taking proper care of yourself, right? eating fast food all the time instead of preparing real food for yourself. And Jay talks about the fact that we kind of feel that our sensual experience is kind of like bad and corrupt. But he says instead of running from sensual experiences, you should be running to good ones. Listening to good music right, is a sensual experience. Sitting down and eating a beautiful, well-prepared meal is a sensual experience. So instead of shutting down your sensual, you know, machinery, engaging it in healthy, appropriate ways can be part of what helps you in this area of deprivation. Does that make sense? Going on vacation, seeing beautiful sights, doing beautiful things. 
dissociation, right? You're so overwhelmed by the stuff you're dealing with. You come home, your wife's driving you crazy, your kids are driving you crazy, so you go upstairs to the attic or to the man cave in the basement, and you binge on Netflix or sports for four hours. That's dissociation. That's you checking out from reality. You scrolling through your social media feed, right? In the porn, in, in the porn recovery realm, they call this edging, right? Where you're not looking directly at porn, but you're kind of like looking at things. You're kind of edging on, you know, like promiscuous posts, you know, on social media or something else or news sites, right? The irony to me, by the way, I'm just going to get mildly political, but not really. The irony to me is that the group that claims the moral majority, the conservative news groups, are the ones with the most sexually salacious content on their websites. You know that, right? I'm sure you've seen this. Like Fox News and all these other places, they have more suggestive things, things with more of the conservative bent, which is really ironic to me because we're the ones who are more sympathetic to Christianity and a moral worldview. There's a lot of themes that show up on these news sites that have these types of ideas. It's not just the liberals. Conservatives have a lot of that content too. Like I don't go to a lot of these news sites anymore for those reasons because like I don't need to see that in my life right now. Um, unconscious sexual arousal. Things where... Um, themes from your own life story and your origins, right, become eroticized in content that you see that starts to awaken unconscious arousal within you. It's kind of what he's talking about. Futility. This idea as a man is really hard, where you're not making any progress. Your kids aren't changing. Your work seems to be useless. It's not going anywhere. Your marriage is plateaued. Those feelings of futility can many times drive us to pornography usage and unwanted sexual behavior. Lust, obviously, is another one. And anger. And lust and anger, unfortunately, many times work hand in hand. Uh, we get so angry at what's going on that it can awaken lust and arousal to kind of act out and bleed off this pressure and be in control. Uh, anger plays another big, big role. One of the biggest, actually, he said in his studies, that anger is always one of those accompanying uh, of these six that go together. Many times they'll interweave one with another. Okay? He says, dissociation in marriages seduces you to leave the difficult relational realities of the present and escape to a fantasy world, a fantasy arousal where you're in control, appreciated, and entitled. One of the things that happens in futility and uh, specifically with the first one of not deprivation is entitlement shows up. You're not getting what you need, so I need this, I deserve, and then you run to unwanted sexual behavior to cope, to get a hit, to move on. Does that make sense? This really happens with us workaholics, right? You're given for everybody else. No, so I, I deserve There's a sense of entitlement that fuels our behavior. He breaks down those six in his book more extensively, by the way. And I'd strongly recommend the book. Okay? He says, Marriage will expose that our minds are far more broken than we could have ever conceived. But more importantly, it gives us opportunities to renew our minds. Marital faithfulness is not predicated on the absence of failure, but on the persistent commitment to renewing your minds. Okay? He says, the choice to repent creates the possibility for personal integrity and relational growth to occur. The more we recognize our need for Jesus, the more we'll grow. But here's the problem. As men, we can be <coughs> stubborn and proud. And for some of us, it's incredible. And some of us come from cultures where vulnerability, are you kidding me? That's disgusting. Who does that? Right? We don't go there. Well, the problem is when you aren't willing to be vulnerable, you're not actually going to experience sanctification. You know that, right? Vulnerability is a prerequisite for sanctification because you have to be willing to take responsibility for what you're doing to receive healing, freedom, forgiveness, and power to overcome. So if you're not going to be vulnerable with your wife, with your kids, and with your employer, do you really think it's going to be easy for you to be vulnerable with Jesus? No, we hate facing our own failure. 
So part of the sanctification experience is being comfortable with the fact that you don't have it all together and you need a power source that you don't have. And until you're willing to fall on that rock and be broken, you're not going to get there. By the way, this is one of the strengths of recovery groups. Admitting your powerlessness, right? That you need a higher power. There's a reason why they say that. Scientifically, it's true. You're too dang stubborn. Get over yourself and die or you don't plan on recovering. It's that simple. We have to be honest with ourselves. We don't have it all together. And the thing is, the first time that you learn to be vulnerable and take responsibility and you don't die, it makes it a little bit easier to do it the second time. And when you don't die the second time, eventually a lifestyle of responsibility can develop. By the way, if you look at King Saul and King David, if you look at their two lives, King David's life is a dumpster fire compared to King Saul and the sins that he committed. It's significantly worse. King David raped Bathsheba. That was not consensual. Nothing in the text says it's consensual. We say they committed adultery. He took her. He sent for her. He took her. She didn't consent to this. And she grieves her husband when he's gone. Like, there's, there's nothing there. Dr. Richard Davidson has an article on it. You can read and so forth. You can beat me up later if you disagree. The point is, his life is way worse than Saul's, yet David will be in the kingdom. Saul most likely will not. What's the difference? Taking responsibility. Psalm 51 is a true biblical repentance that wasn't self-focused, right? Please, I just don't want to get a whooping. Let's not talk about this anymore. That was Saul's repentance. David's repentance was, I know that my behavior has impacted you, God. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this thing. You understand the difference? True biblical repentance is God-focused, not self-focused. But that means you have to let go of yourself and stop thinking about yourself. Does that make sense? All right, he continues. Shame is the painful experience. He also mentions that shame is one of the largest driving factors for unwanted sexual behavior. Shame is a big one. Shame is the painful experience that something you've done or failed to do has made you unwanted or worthy of belonging. My research has found that shame was the most consistent key driver of unwanted sexual behavior. Shame convinces us that we are unwanted, and so we pursue behavior that confirms it. To find freedom, you're going to have to disarm the power of shame. Again, there's a large self-sabotaging component to our unwanted sexual behavior. We're running to behavior that will in turn give us feelings that affirm our own thoughts about ourselves. You're an idiot. You're a loser. You're not good enough. You're dirty. The more we feel shame, the more you use pornography. It might sound obvious that shame drives pornography use, but the sheer numbers may alarm you. Men were nearly 300 times more likely to pursue pornography for each unit of shame they felt about their behavior. Women were 546 more times more likely. It has to be said, shame, not pleasure, drives pornography use. How much is shame addressed in most of these books written to men about lust? It's mainly about your lust and your carnality and your desires, right? We're we're largely missing the boat in a lot of these resources. The experience of shame is the biggest predator in our lives and attempting to outmaneuver our great white memories comes naturally to most of us. We avoid those memories and those origin stories that lead us to feel shame. The problem is it keeps chasing us and devouring us. We swim away from shame each time we downplay the significance of pain, embrace theologies that make amnesia or easy forgiveness of past harms virtuous, and pursue addictive behavior in which we punish our bodies a thousand times over for the cruelty originally committed against us. You understanding the lethal cycle that happens here? Here in, oh, snap. Herein lies the problem. 
Shame's power is so often derived from our flight from it. The more we run, the more it pursues us. We are healed to the degree to which we can turn to face and name what is killing us. It will cost you all that you have to find it, but it just might give you the very thing you've spent your life wandering to find. The ultimate defeat of shame is when the very experiences that attempted to convince you that you were unwanted becomes the sources of the greatest joy of being loved. Part of your healing journey is going to be going back to your original story and finding healing and resolution. Does that make sense? Because here's the thing. Every addiction in your life is an attempt to numb pain. With that being the case, the only way to get through this then is to deal with the pain. Does that make sense? Because if you deal with the pain, there's no longer a need to act out. Although sexual brokenness may have long seemed like an impediment to cultivating a spiritual life, it can be the very means God uses to transform you into the very person that you've always wanted to be. Instead of running from your sexual lust and your sexual unwanted sexual desires and so forth, take a moment to listen to the story they're telling you, because your real healing and freedom will be found in that area of your life. Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, all right. Sheila, in her book, The Great Sex Rescue, covers something here about the topic of lust, looking and lusting that I want to address. She says, one of our best-selling Christian books in the 2000s was Every Man's Battle. Okay? And what was his biggest battle he was fighting? Lust. Every man struggles with it. Every man is tempted by it. Every man must fight really, really hard to overcome it. Thus the term bouncing your eyes was born. When your eyes, when your eyes bounce towards a woman, they must bounce away immediately. Girls were called to modesty as a sign of love for their brothers in Christ. It didn't take long for the modest is hottest slogan to catch on. The way we talk about the struggle, like it's every man's battle and men are naturally visually stimulated, makes it sound like if a guy doesn't struggle with lust, he's not a real man. This is part of the damaging messaging that these groups had. This is from the act of marriage. Women must cultivate the problem of visual lust, whereas men almost universally must cope with the problem just because they're men. This is through a man's eyes. Because men and women are, so, are wired so differently, women often don't realize how the opposite sex sees the world. Most women simply aren't aware of what men's visual nature means or how much it impacts literally every area of most of men's lives or relationships. From every man's battle. We find another reason for the prevalence of sexual sin among men. We got there naturally simply by being male. So you're basically dead set for sexual sin because you're a man, they're saying. I take issue with that. I don't know about you. I'm offended by that. You, you may be, but by the same token, it's not like it's untrue if you look at how uh, degraded our human race is. Here's the problem, though. We, but our human race, not just men, for one. And two, the problem with this messaging is you're telling people this is what you are. That's shame. This is using shame. Guilt is that I've done something wrong. Shame is that I am something wrong. And you're being told biologically you are a sexual sinner because you're a man. You should be offended at that because we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power to overcome inherited and cultivated tendencies. That does not define who I am or how I'm going to do life. Does that make sense? And it makes women feel really weird if they happen to be visually stimulated. We're saying something's wrong with them because only men struggle with this. Does that make sense? So while I agree that we as men will have these draws, doesn't mean this defines who you are and that we're all just deadbeat sex-crazed zombies, either. Yes, exactly. That's exactly right. And we believe that messaging, and we live what people think about us. Yeah. Uh, um, and then for women only says, a man can't not want to look. It's, it's not possible. Okay? I take issue with that. So, she... Uh, let me just address a couple other things here briefly, and I'll go into some of her quotes. 
Um, so she talks about how she read the book To Kill a Mockingbird, and she just loved Atticus Finch, right? This kind of noble man of integrity. She says, a few years later, I was introduced to Jersey Shore. The men on the show knew what they wanted. They wanted it now, and they were entitled in vain, and there was no expectation that they would ever be more. What, brother, what bothers all of us writing this book is that the Christian world has tended to describe all men as having an inner Jersey Shore party boy. Instead of yearning for men to be like Atticus Finch, girls and women are taught that Atticus Finch is a figment of our imagination. We need to resign ourselves to being married to Polly D. This is what resources are telling women and men. This is who you are. This is how it is. Just get resigned to that. So your wives are being given messaging from Christian books to assume that you're going to sin against her sexually unless she sleeps with you. That should offend you. Deeply offends you. Are you understanding the issue here? Okay. Yes. I just wanted to make the comment. We we need uh, sexual healing and truth. Yes. That's right. We need sexual healing and truth. That's exactly right. Um, uh, Yeah. Let me let me jump into the next thing. Go ahead. If you see a woman and she. And she's provocative toward you. Because I was in a grocery store. I, I diverted my eyes because I knew I, right. I knew I'd be interested in looking at that. Right. So, what's my question? Because I, I quickly turned from that. Yeah, we'll get to that. I was still drawn to that. Yeah, yeah. What it, is that? I mean, it just confused me. I said, I, I can't look at that. Of course. Like, I'm not saying that men aren't going to naturally be desirous of the opposite sex. Or that that's like something you have to learn later or something. Like, that's obviously going to be there. And we'll address that actually in just a second. That's a different scenario. Like, that's asking for someone to look as opposed to what's being said about people who aren't even dressing like that. And we'll get to that in just a second. She addresses this in her book, actually. We're basically doing the don't think about pink elephants approach in a lot of these books, right? Bounce your eyes. Don't think about it. Don't think about it. You're so busy not thinking about it that you're always thinking about it and you're struggling even more. Do you see that? She says, on average, men respond more to visual sexual stimuli than women do. Yes. Actually, that's in this right here. Okay. Although we'll soon look at how women are very stimulated as well. But too many people have misrepresented what the psychological research says. It is one thing to say that for most men, sexual arousal results primarily from visual stimulation. Quite another to say, for all men, lustful thoughts will happen unless he avoids visual stimulation. Do you see the difference? Noticing and lusting are not the same thing. So you noticing, that's a situation that I really don't want to be a part of, and moving on with your life is totally different than you parking and staring and thinking and fantasizing in your brain. People were telling me this, and for the longest time, I was kicking my own butt internally and so freaked out because I thought looking was lusting. I thought noticing was lusting. She makes the point eloquently here. That's not true. You can see and notice and move on with your life and not think about it for the rest of the day. Do you see the difference there? Yes, briefly. Just a, a text to refer to and contemplate, Job 31.1. For I made a covenant with my eyes not to look upon the lustfully upon Right. He acknowledges this. Humanity is experiencing he's dealing with. Right. He says, I've given this to God. That's right. The commitment I've made to put myself in the Lord. They, I'm not going to look lustfully, right? Like, he didn't avoid looking at all women, right? He didn't go for, like, the burqa approach where we'll just hide everything and run on with our life. And I want to address that idea here in a second, too. So, um, 
Psychological research definitely says the former, right? That we can be more aroused visually than maybe women would be. Yet the, there are whole doctrines and books that have been written on lust and modesty, assuming the latter. That lustful thoughts happen unless you avoid any visual stimulation. Does that make sense? Again, it's assuming the worst about men and the lowest about men. Reading these books, we're given a picture of how seeing a woman leads to lust. Seeing a woman, noticing her body, being attracted to her, lusting after her, they're presented as steps that inevitably follow one another. This is kind of the way the picture's painted, right? And again, I'll give these slides to the, to the conference. Like a moving sidewalk in an airport, it's difficult to get off that sidewalk once you're on it. And you really, really don't want to get to the end. The only way to exit the moving sidewalk is to avoid her completely by bouncing your eyes, neutralizing the threat. You're talking about a human here, by the way. We propose it looks more like this. The route to lust is not straightforward, and there are many, many chances to avoid lust that don't need to lead to stress. It is possible to notice a woman is beautiful and even feel a flash of attraction and then to think nothing more of it and go on about your day. This was liberating for me. Frankly, this hypervigilance is stressing out a lot of men who are simply trying to be good guys. We're beating ourselves up for being good guys and not actually lusting. Does that make sense? But the messaging tells us something different. She says, the first chapter of Through a Man's Eyes explains the battle that men face on a daily basis with sexual stimuli all around them. Uh, they, they're trying to not look at billboards on the drive to work, trying to bounce their eyes from the barista's chest, worrying that a female co-worker in a tight blouse might sit directly across from them. In the book, we read that Jack breathes a sigh of relief when a co-worker's skirt doesn't ride up too high, and the next few hours are tough because another attractive co-worker is in his line of sight. The all-men-struggle-with-lust message has taught us to trade trust for fear in our marriages. So it shouldn't be surprising when sex doesn't work, because our wives don't trust us because they wonder who else we're thinking about. Because the books that they're reading tell them we think about other women all the time. Does that make sense? Jesus told us to look at the fruit to judge the tree, and the fruit of this tree is nasty. Wives are made paranoid because they're told they can't trust the man they married, the good man who loves them. These books unjustly paint husbands as sex addicts and pathological liars while normalizing ogling women. If this is the fruit, why have we kept the tree? Why are these the most trusted resources on sexual addiction and recovery in marriage? What these books emphasize is the protection of men's purity, but what is the real problem with lust is not just that it taints the man, but that it objectifies and dehumanizes those whom Christ values and calls precious, which are the women. Yeah? Much of the solution to the lust problem, as advocated in every man's battle, views women through the lust lens rather than through a kingdom lens. Women are threats to men's purity. Bouncing your eyes tells men to ask the question, is this woman dangerous to me? A more biblical question to ask is, am I being respectful to this person as an image bearer of Christ? You see the difference? Uh, this girl tells a story. I was on a Christian-based tour, and my sister and I got into the elevator with two other couples from the group. We said hi and smiled. We didn't know the couples, but we did know one thing. The men were both pastors. So it was a bit more pointed when each of them offered up a short, formal hello before physically turning their heads and refusing to look at me. No eye contact, barely an acknowledgement. I was wearing a floor-length sleeveless jumpsuit with a square neckline, not tight, not low-cut. But I don't think it would have mattered either way. I wasn't a person, a human, a woman, a sister in that elevator. I was a walking, talking collection of tempting body parts. I was the enemy. It was dehumanization at its finest. There's a lot of assumptions in that statement right there. A lot of assumptions. Uh, there's a lot of truth to that statement that she's saying. Uh, but, but how do we know that? Maybe, maybe the guy has a phobia, maybe he was ticked off, 
They're two different men. And th- what the point that they're addressing here is the culture's teaching men women are the threat. Don't look at them. Look away, look away, look away, because they're threatened by it. That's the point that they're making, actually. Yes. And so the thing is, we have normalized this idea that men are going to look and going to lust, and we need to avoid all that. Yeah, we need to avoid all of that. And so this is part of our struggle in the messaging. And women know and feel this, and she's telling this from her own story, right? And women see this a lot more than men talk about, that this is what they're feeling. They're not actually humans. They are a threat to men. Well, that makes it really difficult for a woman to embrace her body. Like, I I have someone I care about deeply who basically feels that the world only cared about her body and the church only cared about her body because the church told her cover up, hide that stuff. She can't help the fact that she's built the way that she is. And the world wants to use her for her body. So she grew up hating her body because of the world and the church. Do you understand the messaging that we communicate? Right? So it's easy to defend ourselves in this circumstance, but I would take a moment to think about a woman's perspective and what's actually going on here. Right? Because this happens far more than we recognize, and we need to see the other side to recognize how imbalanced and unhealthy our views can be. Does that make sense? Okay? So not being able to look at a woman treats women like threats rather than people. What do you do with threats? You neutralize them. When dealing with alcoholism, you dump the booze down the sink and you stay away from places with booze. Well, many people treat lust just like alcoholism. Just get rid of the women. Cover everything. Don't let me see anything. This is basically what we're doing. We get rid of them in the sense that we stop looking at them and even trying to notice them because they're a threat to us. And women feel that. Or at least tell them to cover up. But even if every single woman in church dresses like the Amish, the rest of society won't. Besides, you can't live your life avoiding women, nor should you. A woman who runs an anti-sex trafficking organization summed it up this way. The irony is that by equating attraction with lust, we've boiled down women to their bodies, whether a man is avoiding her completely or lusting about her. Defeating lust is not about limiting a man's encounters with women. It's about empowering men to treat the women around them as whole people, daughters of Christ. So the key to defeating lust is not to avoid looking at women. It's to actually see them. Do you understand the difference? To see them as humans, not as bodies that are a threat to me or enticing to me. Either way, we've dehumanized them. Okay? The good news is, whatever may be the evil practice, the master passion which through long indulgence binds both soul and body, Christ not only is able, but he longs to deliver you. And there are resources that offer help to find real solutions. Excellent ones. God has finally brought to the fore data-driven, mental health-focused, and biblically accurate resources that can help us as a church grow and heal, and this is those resources. Okay? Jay Stringer, who wrote Unwanted, has an online curriculum that is outstanding. It's a game changer. And then Celebrate Recovery are groups. The rest are books. Okay? The rest are books. I would strongly encourage you to check those out. Um, I'm going to pray. And then if you have any other questions in the, in the meantime, we can do what we can on that. Or just approach me at lunch or some other time. I'm happy to do that. Um, I'll shorten some stuff for the next one. I haven't done this before, so it's a bit tricky. God, thank you for this chance to hear a different perspective, some different ideas. I pray that you would speak to us and help us know personally what those parts of our story are that are unresolved and to help us find healing and freedom there uh, to in turn find healing and freedom from sexual addiction. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope this presentation from the Maryland Men of Faith has been a blessing to you. Your feedback is welcomed. Please visit us at mmof.org.